Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Now on the BBC World Service, it's Witness History, first-hand accounts of the events that shaped our world. I'm Nora Fitzpatrick and today... I'm taking you back to the summer of 1970, just a few months after NASA's Apollo 13 space mission almost ended in tragedy, when America's space agency put women at the forefront of one of its missions for the first time. It was an underwater experiment to study how scientists would cope, both physically and emotionally, working under pressure in a sealed environment. The most ambitious project yet in ocean research has just started here in the sheltered bay of a beautiful West Indian island. Two up, two down. The latest thing in detached underwater living. It contains everything to make a home for anyone who wants to live 50 feet beneath the surface of the sea. The Tektite 2 mission, as it was called, would allow NASA to study how scientists got on with their research and how they got on with each other while sealed in a very small space. This was something they hoped to replicate with their Skylab space station in a mission planned for 1973. This will be the home for groups of swimming scientists, some of them girls, who will come here from all over the world. Each one will spend up to two weeks at a time living and working on the floor of the ocean. Some of the NASA guys really did not want a woman's mission. They did not think we were capable of doing the work. This is Alina Schmant. She was one of the first five women to take part in a NASA experiment. But it was underwater, rather than in space. So instead of being astronauts, they were called aquanauts. We were going to prove them wrong. It was like, no, we can do this, and we can do as good a job or even a better job than the guys can do. Alina was a graduate student in marine biology when she applied to take part in the Tech Type 2 mission. The team's leader, Sylvia Earle, told the BBC in 2019 that NASA hadn't originally intended to involve women at all. And and they hadn't expected women to apply. And when some of us did, and our credentials were every bit as good as those of the men who applied, they had to face up to, well, should we or should we not have women? And it was kind of a bold decision at the time to say, okay. And the organisers insisted that rather than a mixed mission, it would have to be women only. What I was told was that Congress and the U.S. public was not ready for mixed-gender cohabitation underwater. You know, there's a lot of sexual repression back then. The aquanauts were eventually chosen, and when they were, they had a lot of technical preparation to do. The training for going into the mission was pretty intense. We had to learn how to use rebreathers. We had all these extra lectures. And on top of that, we had to do all of these social activities because of the publicity. And we were pretty tired. We were emotionally, we just wanted to like, okay, can we just do what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to be aquanauts. Can we just go down and get our projects underway? In July 1970, the aquanauts were finally sent to live 15 metres beneath the sea, off the coast of the US Virgin Islands in the Caribbean, for two whole weeks. You have to go back to the 1960s when the space program was in full gear. NASA was trying to plan ahead in terms of how to send humans into space for longer voyages. The best they could do for an extreme environment on Earth was to use the undersea environment. The Department of Interior and NASA and General Electric 
got together and designed this program to help NASA study human beings under isolation. And so then they designed Tech Type 2, which they opened up to working research scientists to submit proposals for projects that would specifically benefit from extended working time underwater. Every day, the scientists would go out to do their underwater research. But when they weren't scuba diving, the aquanauts were confined to two cylinders that measured about three and a half metres across. They called their home the Tektite Habitat. The habitat was built out of two rocket casings. So it's two cylinders side by side. They put a a little tunnel, which was, mm, I don't know, we had to get down our hands and knees and crawl through it to get from one cylinder to the other. So each of the cylinders was divided into an upper room and a lower room. So we basically had four rooms connected by this crawl-through tunnel. The habitat was connected to land through pipes that brought them clean water and fresh air. A lot of the equipment for Tektite was based on land, and they had these big, fat umbilical cords that came out with fresh air. You know, they had to pump new air through the habitat constantly, as well as cleanse it and recirculate it. The water just came out of a tap like any place else. We had a shower. Uh, We had a garden hose to rinse all our dive equipment. We had a kitchen sink to wash our utensils. It It was like living in a tiny little apartment, right? But you had this great undersea outdoors. Meanwhile, though, what NASA was interested in was not the behavior of fishes, but the behavior of the aquanauts themselves. It wanted to know how they got on, the state of their health, and how they filled their days in that cramped habitat not dissimilar to a spacecraft. So the aquanauts were monitored on cameras for 24 hours a day. A large part of the Tech Type 2 program was the behavioral studies. So they had uh, a trailer on land that had video links to, and I'm using the word video loosely, I'm not sure what the technology was at the time, but... They had, uh, they, they had cameras in each of the four rooms that could see what we were doing. And they had graduate students that sat with these little data cards. And every six minutes, they punched for each of us what we were doing. They had a, a list of activities. We could be sleeping or eating or working with somebody or working on data or uh, doing what they called self-maintenance, which I guess could be taking a shower or washing your hair. And then if we were outside of the habitat. So if we were out diving, they didn't know what we were doing. They couldn't see us. So those were the different categories. We knew they were watching us all the time. And in contrast to the men's group, you know, we were a little self-conscious about not being observed when we were in the shower. And there was no shower curtain when we first went down there. So we, during the training mission, we said, uh-uh, we need a shower curtain here. Um, because we knew we were going to be observed all the time. We actually put a funny little plaque on the outside of the shower curtain about this little woman in a bathtub, like, covering up. But it wasn't just researchers watching the aquanauts. There's a saying, it's nice to have a man around the house. But everyone connected with Tektite seemed to agree the old habitat never looked better. America's media couldn't resist the story of five young women aquanauts living underwater in their swimsuits. These women scientists, who can still pass as young students, added a much-needed woman's touch, plus contributed greatly to the knowledge gleaned from the overall program. And when their underwater adventure ended, the five aquanauts were treated like superstars. Our feelings towards the publicity were a mixed bag. Obviously, everybody likes attention, right? And um, it was the first time I ever 
applied in a, in a private airplane. We got ticker tape parade in Chicago. Now, how ridiculous is this? You know, we're sitting in the back of these limos, waving our hands, and people are throwing confetti at us from the tall buildings. We even went to the White House for lunch with Mrs. Nixon. So, I mean, part of it was fun and different. Part of it, we felt a little bit silly. Like, why are we getting this attention? The guys aren't getting this attention. We haven't done anything that the men haven't done. And so we're being singled out, right? Like, okay, we didn't think you could do this. But they could. And all the reports from the mission show that the women worked harder on their research projects than the teams of men who had lived in the Tektite habitat before. I think the women's team, more than the men's team, was under tremendous pressure to perform. So uh, we took this very seriously. We, we knew that we were in a glass fishbowl and everybody was watching us. And from then onwards, women were included in more missions. But it was another 13 years before NASA sent its first woman into space. Dr. Alina Schmant was speaking to Witness History with me, Laura Fitzpatrick. <laughs> 